Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, in the year 155, Izmir, Turkey. It's a beautiful city on the Aegean Sea. If you can picture uh, sort of the Greek peninsula and Athens on the coast, uh, Izmir is almost directly across the Aegean Sea in Turkey from Athens. And in this city in AD 155, an old man named Polycarp was on trial. And Polycarp was the bishop at Smyrna, which is also known as Izmir, Turkey, the same city we just read about. Polycarp was being threatened with death for denying the Roman gods and for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And according to ancient sources, here was his reply to the, to the charges. Eighty and six years I have served Christ. Eighty-six years I have served Christ. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is, is quenched. There was no hesitation in Polycarp. He was faithful right until the end, and the Roman authorities followed through with their threats. They burned him at the stake and stabbed him with a spear for his Christian confession. Now, Polycarp, according to a very ancient, the earliest sources, had actually been a disciple of John the Apostle, who wrote the book of Revelation. And according to Jerome, one of these sources, Polycarp had actually been ordained by John to go and serve the church at Smyrna. John had, had chosen Polycarp, set him aside as a young man to go and serve this church in modern-day Turkey, the same church that we just read about here. See, Polycarp would have known what John wrote to the church at Smyrna. He would have known what was in store for that church. And from what I've just related to you, Polycarp took both his mentor John and his Savior Jesus at their word. He believed what was written here that Jesus Christ is worth dying for. Now, the question for us, it's more complicated than it was for Polycarp. Dying for something, dying for someone isn't easy. Of course it's not easy, but it is simple or it's relatively straightforward. But for most of us, we are not threatened with death for believing in Jesus. And so we must answer a kind of more complicated question, how to live for Jesus as if we might have to die for him. That's a, that's a, that's a more complicated question to answer. And what does the letter to the church at Smyrna has to teach us? Well, it does have to teach us this sort of macro principle. Jesus is worth dying for and therefore worth living for. But we'll get into it. Let's take our text in four sections. First, the God of life and death. We'll do that first, this, this, this introduction by Jesus. We'll talk about what Jesus knows about the church. That'll be part two. Fear and faithfulness, the kind of response Jesus wants from them. And then fourth, we'll just kind of reiterate the same thing we started with, this God of, the God of life and death. Now, all the letters to the churches, especially if you're visiting this week or new, I know some of the families who had baptisms have a bunch of people visiting, all these letters follow a similar pattern. They're addressed to the angel of the church at such and such a place. It just reminds the, the church reading this letter that they have a spiritual existence, that Jesus is sort of delegating his angels to help and assist each church. 
And what an encouraging thought that churches aren't left alone. It's not like, oh, go do the best you can. But the spirit of Christ that indwells Christians and as well heavenly beings that surround them, they're all there to help. But who is writing? Who's writing to the church at Smyrna? Well, we might say on a human level, the Apostle John, he is putting pen to paper or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of utensil he's writing with. But on a more fundamental level, Jesus is writing to them. Jesus is dictating, you know, write to this them, John is transcribing. And in each of the letters, Jesus highlights something about his own nature, about who he is that relates to the situation. If you remember last week, Jesus said, I'm the one who holds all the lampstands, which means I'm the one who holds all the churches. And then he goes on to warn the Ephesian church, I'm going to take your lampstand away. I'm going to take your, your ability to be a church away. But that's not what he tells the church at Smyrna. No mention of lampstands, no mention of anything that's set, anything like that. He tells them he is the first and the last who died and came to life. Let's just dwell on this just for a moment. The first, Jesus is the first. As far back as you might be able to cast your mind and your imagination, Jesus was there. As far back as scientists and cosmologists can calculate the existence of the world, Jesus was there. He cannot be preempted. That's what it means to be first. Nothing came before him. He was the very first thing there was. But he's also the last. Nothing will endure longer than him. Nothing can outlive him or will outlast him. In the time of our descendants, grandchildren upon great-grandchildren, he will be there. If the stars grow cold and burn themselves out, he'll be there. If he is the beginning and the end, he inhabits the ends of the spectrum. But of course, then he is there all the way along as well. That means he was there when the first humans made stone tools. He was there when Genghis Khan and the hordes roamed the grasslands. And when the indigenous people of Australia traveled the outback and Incas were setting up their empire. And when Justin Trudeau was prime minister. Like, Jesus was there for all of those times. Alpha and Omega, that's the way John says it somewhere else. It's this position of immense power and strength and might and authority. And it's, of course, a claim to divinity. Uh, no mortal can achieve this status. But he can. It's, he simply is. But then look at what he adds. It feels like a bit of a, a funny thing. He says that he's the one who died. Kind of boggles the imagination. The one who came before all things, the one who will endure after all things... This one entered the middle of the story and died and then rose from the dead. Now that raises all kinds of questions, paradoxes. How can an eternal one die? The scriptures don't give the biological details that some of us would really like to have. J James Hamilton Jr., this uh, scholar on the book of Revelation, he says it this way. He says, we don't know how it happened. We simply know that it happened. That the one who was first and the one who is last died in the middle and rose again. It doesn't make any sense. But it does mean that Jesus owns death. Now, he has the key to it. That death uh, and hell have no power except what is delegated to them. And this all, the reason I'm kind of spelling this out in detail, this will become tremendously important to the church at Smyrna. The fact that Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, that will make all the difference in the world to someone like Polycarp as he faces the fire and the spear. The one who speaks to the Smyrna church is the first and the last. And when he speaks to them about what is to come, they can have confidence. He'll be there when all these things come to pass. When he speaks to them of pain and suffering and potential death, he, he speaks from a place of knowledge and experience. In the God-man Jesus Christ, we have this tremendous marriage of, of power, divinity, authority, and human experience. He knows. It can give one both confidence and comfort. 
Now let's move to part two. What does Jesus know about this church? What's going on here? I, I mentioned this last week. I think it's worth repeating. Jesus knows what is going on in all of his churches. That's a language he uses over and over. He's not an absentee landlord in university. I had like a British landlord, you know, administrating his affairs from across the ocean. Terribly annoying, you know, to ever try to get a hold of him. But, but Jesus is not like that. By virtue of his divinity, he is seeing not only the external dealings of the church, but the internal thoughts and motives of the heart. Remember last week, he knows the Ephesians, they've lost their first love. But what does he know about this church at Smyrna? He says three things, kind of in rapid succession in verse 9. First, he knows their tribulation. Now, if you read the rest of the book of Revelation, tribulation will become this important word. But all it means is something like affliction or pressure or suffering. Something is happening in Smyrna. Something's going on in that city that's bringing affliction to the church. So we're not just speaking about personal suffering, personal tragedy, personal sickness. Those things are difficult. They're hard in a different way. That's not exactly what's going on here. The church as a whole is under tribulation, under pressure. They are being squeezed in some way by the people and the culture and the authorities. And what I want you to notice is Jesus does not downplay it. Do you notice that? He's not like, hey, look, it's no big deal. The suffering and the experience, they're not trivialized by Jesus because, have you heard about Sardis? What's going on there? It's way worse than what you guys are dealing with. That's not how he talks to them. He just says, I know your tribulation. Sometimes in church, we get playing comparison games. And you're like, ah, but I don't suffer from stage four cancer. Uh, my, you know, our church hasn't been violently assaulted or something. And so we downplay our suffering. It's like, wow, it's not as bad as. Jesus doesn't do that. He simply tells the Smyrnans, he knows. And that's true of us as a church. It's true of you as an individual. He knows. You know that Jesus knows the problems our church had during COVID? He knows the people that left. He knows the words that were said. And we're like, wow, it's not as bad as many churches. That doesn't matter. He just knows. He's not ignorant of it. He also knows, and this is a silly example, but he knows what it's like to set up and take down chairs every week and meet in a rented gymnasium. Is it the worst problem? Of course not. There are hundreds of worse problems, but he knows. He knows the pressure it puts on. He knows the, the extra things that it costs. See, whatever your struggle, whatever your tribulation, Jesus knows you're not alone in it. He's not telling you, buck up, someone else has it worse. No, no, he ennobles their situation. He gives the struggle dignity. Second, he knows their poverty. This church was poor. The Greek word for poverty means poor. <laughs> it means broke. They didn't have a lot of money. And it's likely that these new Christians were being economically persecuted for their faith. Other leading citizens are seeing, oh, they're, they're, Christianity's kind of down in the eyes of the emperor, not favorable. Let's take this chance to push people out of the labor market, push people out of the real estate market. Like in some way, no, not let them trade at the main market in town or whatever, but th there's a way to make things difficult for them. And the church is broke. And Jesus knows. He knows. If you're a person who barely has enough, you're scraping by, he knows. He's not ignorant of that need. And he, by the way, he doesn't connect poverty to a lack of faith or a lack of hard work. He says, sometimes you're just broke. Sometimes you just are, you just have poverty. And Jesus knows that they are poor. Now, sort of in brackets, he's like, no, look, you're in fact rich. And he doesn't mean economically. He doesn't mean like they have a secret bank account somewhere. But, they, but spiritually, 
They have every blessing in Christ Jesus. Even as he comforts them in their poverty, he reminds them, look, you do have a richness that cannot be taken away. But, it, but it kind of, and what he's kind of saying to them is poverty is not the worst thing that could happen to you. And that maybe is a good thing for us to think about. I think for some of us, poverty does feel like the worst thing that could happen. Being poor, being dependent, being, uh, having to move around or whatever, that does feel like our worst nightmare. But biblically speaking, being poor is not the worst thing that can happen. Not having Jesus is the worst thing that can happen. It may feel devastating. When you hit the bottom economically, Jesus is with you. And, he, and the, Jesus says, if you have me, then you have a kind of wealth that recessions and layoffs and, and a real estate crash or whatever, it, it can't take away. Third, Jesus knows they are being slandered. We're still in verse 9 there. Slander is to say something untrue about someone to a third party. Kids, tell your parents, your brother did something, you know, to you, and they didn't, technically slander. Adults, you blame a work colleague uh, for a failure, the project that you were working on, and it wasn't their fault, it wasn't in fact your fault, but you blame them for it in front of the bigger boss, you know, technically slandered. The Smyrna church is being slandered by, this is what he writes, by those who say they are Jews but are not, and in fact, they're a synagogue of Satan. Now, I need to explain this because, uh, you may not know this, but in the history of Christianity, this verse has been used as support for persecution against Jewish people by Christians. Anti-Semites, they love this verse. They're like, see, look at these Jews, synagogue of Satan, and then they use it for justification for all kinds of terrible atrocities. So let me explain what's going on and what, what, what this verse means. Historically, and we know this from Christian sources and non-Christian sources, in the Roman Empire, Jews had been granted official exemptions, official protection from participating in any of the Roman religions. They didn't have to sacrifice to the emperor or do any of these things. Basically, they were an official religion. The Romans had let them do their own thing. They, were not, they didn't have to fear persecution of any sort. I mean, later on, uh, it, it, it kind of changes a little bit, but right now, this is the case. Because Christianity grew out of Judaism, for a while, Christians enjoyed the same status as Jews. They, they were free. They didn't have to you know, go to any of the temples. They didn't have to sacrifice to the emperor or whatever. But what began to happen in numerous places and in Smyrna is that Jews began to inform on the new Christians. They'd go to the Romans and they'd say, hey, these, these people, these, these new followers of the way, these new Christians, uh, they're not Jews. They're a new religion. So don't, don't give them our protections, you know, and then they're exposed to, to persecution and different things. And from what we know of early church history, we actually have letters from Roman authorities. Christians were regularly being accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister. They were being accused of cannibalism for calling the Lord's Supper the body and the blood of Christ. They were accused of upsetting the social order, being bad citizens. There was a number of things, and many of these things were, you know, were punishable by death. So, Jew, so what was happening is Jewish people were outing the Christians in Smyrna. They're going to the Romans and informing on them. And so you have to understand, in Smyrna, this time, the Jews are kind of at the top, they're, or at least they're on the social ladder, they have some political power, uh, and Christians, basically, if they weren't under the synagogue, you know, they were down at the bottom. But what you need to know is Jesus has no animus against the Jews. He was Jewish. <laughs> that, that, those were his people. But once he came, once Jesus came, then to be a true Jew is to accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. He's the one. The Old Testaments are pointing to him. He's fulfilling all the prophecies. It's him. So what Jesus is saying here is that the Jews in Smyrna are not acting like true Jews. True Jews would have taken Jesus as a Messiah. Instead, they, they are inadvertently working with these evil powers to expose Christians to persecution. 
So that's what's going on. I know it's a bit of a long explanation, but I think it'll help. And Jesus tells the church, I know you are being slandered. Now, in every generation, in every country, every part of the world, the Christian message is always at odds with something in that culture. Christians always are kind of opposing the social order in some way. It's just how it works. Uh, one writer said that in ancient Rome, the norm for, for people uh, was to be generous with their beds and stingy with their money. In short, what he meant was the uh, sexual norm was to be quite promiscuous, and the economic norm was to be extremely tight, not to give anything away. But the Christians come along into this Roman world, and they were very generous with their money, and they were very stingy with their beds. They gave and sacrificed in all kinds of economic and in time and whatever, um, but basically they insisted on sex only between married couples. And the Christian message was at odds with Rome, with Roman culture and, and Greek culture. And the Christian message is at odds with our culture too. And we don't have time to go into all the ways that's true, but basically it, when you don't go along with some wind of social change that is blowing, you get accused of being divisive or being hateful. And when that happens, Jesus says he knows he knows you're being slandered. He knows what people are saying about you. So Jesus knows this Smyrna church. He knows their tribulation. He knows their poverty. And he knows that they are being slandered. Interestingly, this is neither a rebuke nor a commendation. It's not like you're doing bad. It's not like you're doing good. It's like, it just is. It's what's true. You know, not all churches, not all Christians have big changes to make. Sometimes you just simply endure. Sometimes it just is. But that's where we turn next. What do we do when we find ourselves in similar situations. Fear and faithfulness, part three. How do you think you'd feel? You're part of this church at Smyrna, you're under pressure, you're broke, you've, you've been thrown under the bus, or you feel like you've been thrown under the bus un, un, unfairly, it feels hopeless, you have no power, you don't feel very good about your situation. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, there's sort of something else. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, but it's about to happen. And he gives them the bad news. They're going to suffer, and some of them are going to get thrown in prison, and they will be tested there for 10 days. There will be tribulation. Now, numbers in Revelation tend to be very symbolic. Seven, as we've said a couple times, it normally means completeness, perfection. Ten often indicates something full, like a, it's a kind of, kind of like a complete number, but limited. If they want to express something unlimited, the writer, off, John, often uses thousands or, you know, whatever. But, but basically, when he wants to use ten, he's meaning something uh, kind of full, but not, not that long of a time. All that to say, I don't think he's trying to say, hey, tribulation in Smyrna is gonna be 10 solar 24-hour days. That's, that's not really what he means. He just means there, there is coming a relatively brief tribulation. But what does Jesus say to a church that's already in a tough place? Tribulation, poverty, slander, and things are about to get worse. There's gonna be suffering and imprisonments. Well, whatever it is, we ought to listen carefully I think the Canadian church is not in such a different position. Things aren't great. They don't appear to be getting better. Now look, for us, it doesn't appear that prison and death and these things are on the horizon, but the general principles, the general trajectory seems to hold. What does Jesus say to them? This will be important. Three things. Don't be afraid. Trouble is testing and be faithful. First, Jesus tells them not to fear what they are about to suffer. When do you have to tell someone not to fear? When fear is the appropriate or the natural response, you say, don't be afraid because it's normal to be afraid. See, when it comes to pain and suffering and persecution, the natural response is like, I don't want that. I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of the mocking. I'm afraid of the physical pain, the emotional pain, the economic pain. 
Jesus never tells them it's not going to hurt. Doesn't patronize them. He doesn't minimize what they're going to go through. He ennobles it. He also doesn't tell them to run away from it. He doesn't say, hey, well, just, just, just flee over to Ephesus. They have it a little bit better over there. He doesn't tell them to do anything spectacular. He just says, don't be afraid. Now, how can he say that? It's so normal to be afraid. <laughs> he, he can say that because of the introduction, because he's the first and the last. He's the one who died and came to life. Can you see how the, the way Jesus introduces himself or reintroduces himself to the Smyrna church has everything to do with what they are going through? If they could know Christ in his power and authority and eternity, then in him are all the resources to deal with the coming suffering. So my friends, if you do suffer, or when you suffer in the future, you must know the God who suffered. Jesus does not speak like a Greek God from Mount Olympus calling down to us, be stoic in the face of pain. Aphrodite knew nothing of what it was like to suffer. Zeus knew nothing what it was like to be oppressed. But we have a God who bled and he suffered and he died and he rose again. And as the one who has conquered such things, he comes to us and bids us, you do, tells us, you don't have to be afraid. I'm your life. I will be with you in the future, whatever the future holds. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, your life, if you're a Christian, your life is hidden with Christ. It's hidden. They can't take it away. Christ is your life. You don't have to be afraid. Second, he tells the Smyrnans, trouble is testing. Look at the middle of verse 10. Jesus tells them, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that they may be tested. Now, Jesus leaves no doubt who's behind the imprisonments. Sure, it's Roman soldiers with the chains and the spears or whatever, but it's the devil himself who is opposing these Christians. And we might imagine, we don't, we don't know, but from the devil's perspective, imprisoning Christians, well, that'll intimidate them, that'll make them fearful, it'll hurt them, it's malicious, maybe it leads to disbelief and distrust. But Jesus gives a different perspective. He says, oh no, the imprisonment is testing. Now, when we say that word testing, you're like, you're picturing the exam room, you know, of your high school or university. And we think, well, when testing, that means you're getting a grade, like you're going to get a 78 on this or something. But, but that's not the way Jesus is using the word. He isn't saying, hey, when you get thrown into prison, that God's going to be there being like 62, you know, and like, hey, here's a C plus, you did okay. God, that's not the way it's working. By testing, Jesus t means imprisonments will work to refine and grow your faith. Testing is much more akin to a blacksmith, you know, hitting a sword or a horseshoe on an anvil. It's like, that hurts. That's, that's if you're, if you're, the, if you're the, the horseshoe. It, it's not pleasant, but that, that act is, is, is reshaping. It's strengthening the metal for its coming purpose so that when it gets put on the horse's foot or hoof or whatever, you know, it's, it's going to work right. See, just like there are many biblical stories we could do, but Satan or evil people, someone's intending something for evil, and God sort of twists it and turns it on its head. He's able to make good out of it. Just like the death of Jesus, intended it for evil, God uses it for the good of many, tribulation in life, Jesus, John say, it's used by God to refine our faith. It can be used to strengthen us. Trouble is testing. Third, to this church about to enter a time of suffering, Jesus tells them, end of verse 10, be faithful unto death. Now, it's one of those ones we read in church sometime, and we're like, oh yeah, okay, yep. <laughs> But do you hear the full force of what Jesus says? He says, it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than to go on living. That's, that's big. 
Only a king, only a Lord could make this kind of demand on his people. Only Jesus, by virtue of what he did, and by virtue of who he is, can command something like this. But he tells these Smyrnans, and it's blunt, I'm better than death. I'm better. I'm worth it. If or when you have to choose, choose me. And look, life is our most precious belonging, all of us. It's our ultimate belonging. And Jesus says, I need to rule over that too. You, you, can't, you can't hold on to that. And this is what it means to be a Christian. It means believing that Jesus is worth more than anything you have, including your life. And that means he's also worth more than your reputation, worth more than your wealth, worth more than your happiness, worth more than your family. Whatever you want to put on the other side of the ledger, if or when you have to choose Jesus or that thing, choose Jesus. And that's why I said in my introduction, this teaching isn't, isn't like hard, but it's complicated. Because what, what does that mean? <laughs> what, does that, what does that mean for your budget? What does that mean for how you parent or how you spend your time? Or, uh, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think it's the point here. My point is that we all have regular accounting to do. To sort of like tick through the transactions of our life and figure out, is something becoming more important than Jesus? Being faithful unto death means a thousand little deaths during this life. Dying to ourselves, dying to some desires that we might live to instead of Christ. And now you want to object, I want to object. That's really hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really hard. Did you notice the three things Jesus commands of the church at Smyrna? Do not fear, trouble is testing, and faithfulness unto death. Do you notice that in those three things, he asks nothing of Smyrna he has not already done himself. He doesn't come along and say, hey, you guys do this, and I, you know. No, he's done all of it. Think about it. He fearlessly entered suffering in this life. He entrusted himself to his father. He was tested. He was imprisoned. And out of his suffering, God brings immense good to many, salvation to the world. And most of all, he's faithful unto death. The suffering and imprisonment was not 10 days and then freedom, but he stayed. He gave himself over to the cross so that many might live. That's why Jesus can command Polycarp and the other faithful saints at Smyrna to do the same. That's why Jesus can command the same of us if we're his people. Even when we face trials and sufferings of any kind, we are simply being commanded to be like our Savior. The pattern of the Christian life is the pattern of the life of Christ. And that brings us to this final section, and this will be quick. Just a reiteration of who Christ is. Think of it this way. If the Christian life is walking in the footsteps of Christ, then what was the final stage of Christ's life? It wasn't death, but it was life. He said, I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. So this letter to the Smyrna church ends not with a note of suffering, ends not with a note of persecution, ends not with a no note of death. It ends with a promise of a crown of life. And in verse 11, that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now what's a crown of life? Well, it's kind of a play on words. It evokes the images of a garland that they'd award to Olympic champions. You know, this, this garland of like leaves or whatever, and, and, and they would, they'd be crowned with it or they'd go, it'd go around their neck when they won wrestling or, or, or running or whatever. Jesus says, oh, Christians are, are garlanded, but they're garlanded with life. That's what, that's what they put on when they conquer. And what about the second death? What does that cryptic phrase mean? Well, we have to kind of look deeper into Revelation, but the first death is the death we all die, our human, biological, regular death. The second death, it's mostly talked about in Revelation 20 and 21, where Jesus calls the final judgment. 
the second death. And specifically, he says the second death is reserved for those who reject Christ. The ones who will not have Christ in this life die a second time. This is in Revelation 20 and 21. Now look, that's not a warm thought. It's not a fuzzy thought. It's not really exactly the point of this passage. Jesus uses it here to emphasize to suffering, persecuted people that faithfulness in this life leads to eternal life and blessing in the next. Jesus is worth dying for because you are spared a future and a far worse death in the life to come. So look, on one hand, this whole address to this church at Smyrna should be a profound encouragement to faithfulness, whatever kind of trouble you are in. Whatever kind of trouble we encounter as a church now or in the future, it reminds us Jesus knows about it. He's been through it. He will be with us in it. It's this encouragement to be faithful. But secondly, it just reminds us of the stakes of this life. And that applies to anyone, Christian, non-Christian, whatever you are. Perhaps you're wondering if following Jesus is worth it. Perhaps some kind of opposition or some kind of objection has you stopped. Maybe you're just skeptical of the whole thing. That's understandable, but listen. The warning in verse 11 is for you. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So my my plea to you would be the exact same. Would you listen? Would you open your spiritual ears? Would you hear the words of Jesus, the first, the last, the one who died and came to life? For he bids you to follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for this letter. Thank you for John writing it. Thank you that it's been preserved through the ages, that we might read it, that we might be encouraged in any suffering and trial and difficulty we face. Make us steadfast, but mostly make us like yourself. Teach us what death to life means, all all the little deaths we must, must die all the way along. Fashion us in the likeness and image of Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.